Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the ground, from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceives me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it, and all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. And for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever." 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. She is a very suitable helper. <laughs> Amen. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at some points from this text. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, you know, we do thank you. Thank you for just these, these foundational stories in, in, in Genesis uh, that very much you know, can help shape uh, how we see the world, how we see our place in the world, our role in the world. Uh, and Father, you know, as, we, as we look at this text, as we look at the fall of man, uh, God, help us, God. To see your, your intent stays true, uh, and, and so much of what you've entrusted to us, God, it, it does hinge on our choices, God. We pray, God, you help us to be a people that choose to follow you, choose to listen to your voice, and that we can continue that, that work that you've set before us as, as you know, vice regents here and, and, and on, on earth uh, as your image bearers, God. Help us, God, to... to uh, you know, remain close to you and dependent on you as we pursue that task. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a, uh, you know, as all the stories of Genesis go, it's a, uh, it's a powerful one. Uh, and, you know, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've begun, begun to piece through, uh, you know, these, these early chapters. Uh, and we've learned a lot from it. And we covered a fair bit of chapter two. And today, as you can see, we will cover... Uh, a bit of, you know, two and, and, and even more specifically into three. Uh, and three answers some very fundamental questions uh, that mankind often asks. Right? What is wrong with the world? How did we end up where we are at? Right? What is the core problem? What, what is the solution? Right? These, are, these are questions that are often asked. And Genesis 3 has a lot of answers to it. Uh, and, and for us as modern readers, as, as the Bible often does, but I think Genesis and, you know, the Old Testament, uh, you know, by and large, uh, you know, more so than maybe even the New Testament at times, uh, confronts us with a very different worldview. When you think about it, if you ask people, if you, go, if you go and you ask people on the street, what's wrong with the world? The answers that you would get now versus what Genesis here is going to unpack are very, very different, right? Contrary to the world we live in, the, the problem of mankind is not low self-esteem. It's not high self-esteem. It's not food die number five, number seven, or 11. It's none of those things. It's not sugar, it's not saffron, it's not society. It's sin. Specifically sin that, you know, came uh, because Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent. You know, and again, that's a, that's a vastly different worldview than our world has today. Right? And again, we've got to allow the scriptures to shape how we see the world, uh, by and large, a heck of a lot more than how the world sees the world. Right? Uh, God's word will stand the test of time, whereas the world will pass away. You know, but uh, as, a, as a side point here, though, as we, as we consider that idea, you know, we, we've got to continue to have humility. Uh, Adam and Eve, maybe even sometimes more so Eve than Adam, get a bad rap for what happens here. We look at them and we look at their choices and we think, how could you? Why would you? Uh, why not just obey? You know, we can very quickly, uh, you know, begin to think, oh, if I was there, that's not what I would have done. Right? And we would do well to listen to the famous preacher G.K. Chesterton from the UK uh, when responding to a newspaper article asking what's wrong with the world. He simply responded with, I am. Having humility to understand that, that each of us, we make choices. And the reality is, if we were there, we would have done probably the exact same thing as Adam and Eve. Amen? Uh, so let's look here at a few things. Because there are some major themes that get, that get introduced. Uh, and one of the first ones that's, that's very clear here uh, is a, a, a new being is introduced. Right? We'll, we'll uh, you know, perhaps expand our viewpoint of Satan in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, even more so when we get to Genesis 6 and the flood and the Nephilim and all those fun, fun topics. Uh, you know, but, but hopefully, you know, today we can look at a little bit deeper at those two topics uh, of sin and Satan. Uh, the effects that choosing to follow Satan and, 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 and fall into sin, how that affects our lives. Right? Vertically with, with God 
internally with ourselves and horizontally with one another. Uh, and then we'll close out on a positive note uh, with obviously how God responds. Amen? How God responds, right? And so you know, consider here sin and Satan. And here, here on the screen, you guys can see it. Yeah. You guys feel like the resolution is better? We got three yeses, Ben. Ben worked very hard to get a new cable that improved oh, four or five. Okay, it's more yeses now, Ben. ben Ben's very pleased with that, but unfortunately, better resolution for you guys has led to no, no slides from me. So, sacrifice I make that Ben will fix someday. Right? But picture there is a uh, Sumerian god of the underworld. Uh, I'll butcher his name just for, for fun. Uh, Ningizidda. Right? So if you're Sumerian, I apologize for, for, for mispronouncing the name. Uh, but, you know, he, he was regarded as the, the lord uh, of the good tree. Uh, and again, like we've talked about it for a bit, we've got to understand that, 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 that Genesis specifically is written within that context. And so this idea of, of, of a divine serpent is not like a new concept. That was a concept that they had, um, you know. And, and there's maybe even some things in our text that shed a little light on it, right? I'm not a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, uh, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew words, what do they not have? No vowels, right? So only consonants, right? Um, and, and, and the word there for, for serpent, uh, you know, if you insert, uh, you know, obviously some vowels, uh, as you can see there on the screen, uh, nachas, right? If you put A's in there, uh, you come up with serpent, right? Which contextually, yeah, that makes sense, right? Uh, you know, but, but if you insert the second, you know, example, as you can see there on the screen, uh, if you spell it N-O-C-H-E-S-H, right, you come up with diviner, right, like an oracle, uh, a, a, a sage. Uh, and Michael Heiser in his book, Unseen World, which is a great book, encourage you to read it, uh, talks about this idea and, and, you know, divination. If you remember back to when we studied 1 Samuel, and yes, someday we'll do 2 Samuel, as some of you have pointed out to me, we never finished Fair enough. <clears throat> if you remember back to, to 1 Samuel, Saul gets in trouble with some div divination, right? trying to communicate with the, the, the uh, to get wisdom out of the underworld using the witch of Endor, right? which God obviously wasn't fired up about. You know? But you can look at Satan in, in, a, in, a, in a couple of lights here, not just as a serpent, but also as a, a, a source of wisdom from beyond this world. And even if you consider how they interact, how Eve you know, and, and, and the serpent interact, there is an element of that. Right? There's an element of that. He is, he's, he's offering a path to wisdom, a, a path to likeness of God uh, that deviates from God's path. And so Satan is offering a philosophy, a viewpoint, a, a, a path uh, that's contrary. Right? So he's functioning in that way. And, you know, it's an interesting, you know, because a lot of times we get this uh, false caricature of Satan. And we've got to understand that in Genesis, in the Old Testament as, as a whole, and Satan, he is a formidable opponent. Yeah. We, would, we would do well to not create these false little cartoonish characteristics of Satan as a little demon on your shoulder. Uh, he is way more powerful than that. Uh, Heiser in his book, Unseen World, talks about this concept. And like I said, we will touch on it more in depth uh, as we get into Genesis 6 specifically. But, you know, again, as we read Genesis and we look at the Garden of Eden, we meant to see it as a throne room as we discussed Within that throne room of any, of any ruler uh, is the council that that person has. Uh, and, and, and Heiser and many others, uh, you know, rightly point out that perhaps that's the setup here, that Satan is part of that council, that divine council. He is a higher level spiritual being, an angel, if, you know, as he's described elsewhere, uh, you know, that, that has immense wisdom. And the word used there for crafty is actually a positive word. If you read Proverbs and it talks about being prudent, that's the same word. So Satan has a wisdom there uh, within him, you know. But as Paul and the Bible makes very clear, that wisdom is contrary to God's wisdom. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, talks about how Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And angels are messengers. They, 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 they produce information. And, and so Satan acts like he is a messenger that has good intent for your life, but he actually has a very contrary goal. His goal is to destroy you, to bring you down to where he has been cast. You know, as a quick deviation here, hop, hop over to Ezekiel. 
chapter 28. Famous passage in considering this concept. Ezekiel 28. There in verse 11. And there's a similar passage, we won't, we won't read it for time's sake, in Isaiah 14. Uh, and, and here, in, in Ezekiel 28, it's, you know, it's, Ezekiel is going to have a lament uh, about the king of Tyre. Uh, in Isaiah 14, it's going to be a lament about the king of Babylon. Uh, both of them are displaying patterns that mimic the serpent. And that's why we gain some information here. It's not just about the, 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 the king of Tyre, as we'll see here, but it's about the serpent. All right, so Ezekiel 28, verse 11, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, crystallite, emerald, topax, Onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Right, so he was sparkling. Right. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to, to, to the earth, I made a spectacle of you before kings, by your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out of you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. It's a telling lament. You know, and you can see in some of the details that, that there's no way this is purely about the king of Tyre. He wasn't there in the garden. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't there. Uh, and, and so, but it, like, like I said, even with the Isaiah 14 passage, which you can read as well, he's mimicking this pattern of the serpent. All right? We see you know, what, what, it, what essentially is that pattern uh, is, is you know, a heavenly being that has tremendous power, and it goes to his head. And he becomes filled with pride. And that pride takes him down a path where everything about him and what he was meant to be becomes corrupted. And so he's expelled that guardian cherub there in verse 16 uh, because they become, because he had become corrupted. You know, and he's been thrown down. And, and, and that's, you know, I, I, I tend to think that is who we are encountering here in, in, in Genesis. That is who Adam and Eve are, are, are interacting with. Uh, you know, and, you know, there's irony in it, right? Because, you know, further on, as Michelle read in, in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, when, when God comes on the scene and he curses the, the, the serpent, what does he do? Where does he cast him? He casts him down, right? Uh, wh why does he cast him down? Because he was lifting himself up, right? And so God is, 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 is demonstrating to us the danger of that, of that pattern, but also showing us that, that, that the opponent we have is incredibly strong. We won't get deeply into it today, but I mean, look, you know, the, the story of Cain and Abel there in chapter four, off over there for a second and, and look at verse seven. And as God is, is there in verse seven, trying to, to reason with Cain as Cain begins to plot his, his, his brother's uh, death. You know, God tells Cain that, that sin is crouching at your door. That's predatory language. Satan is not a, a, a passive player in this world. He's not just merely sitting back and, and, and watching. He is, as Peter will later tell us, he is 
prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We've got, we've got to take, take note here that man, what, what we're dealing with, what we're faced with as God's image bearers in, 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 uh, in this world is a divine being of incredible power in Satan, hell-bent on destroying you. Hell-bent on ripping apart what God has created that is good. And oftentimes we buy into this false idea of, of you know, no one's going to influence me. Rubbish. Rubbish. We're influenced constantly. And if we think that that influence is purely from humans, we are being incredibly and dangerously naive. That there are not, not most high gods, divine beings higher than us, more powerful than us, more knowledgeable than us, that are, that are at work in this world to try to destroy you as an image bearer of God. And Adam and Eve are going to learn that lesson the hard way. But I think right there, as we, as we see this serpent introduced, and as we see him come with words, with words, we're faced with a choice. Of who are you giving ear to? Who are you really listening to? Whose message is your ear trained to listen to? Whose message is your ear, uh, you know, perked up when it hears that voice? Because Satan is all about distorting. I mean, you see what he does with Eve, right? He gets Eve to react. Right? He questions God's word. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden? Did God really say that? Did he really say you would die? And you see how, how does Eve react? I mean, she's on point, isn't she? Or is she? I mean, she adds a phrase to it, right? God said, don't eat it and don't even touch it. Well, hold on, God didn't say that. But you see what Satan has done. He's gotten her to overreact. And muddy the water in some sense. And she's adding in some details that maybe she felt like was fitting. Satan is crafty, he is prudent, he is wise, and he is a heavenly being hell-bent on destroying you. And we've got to be people that listen to God and listen to his word. Because what he tempts her to do is way more serious than simply eating a piece of fruit. Way more significant than that. D.A. Carson in his book, The God Who Is There. He writes, he says, what is crucial is not the tree, but the rebellion. What is so wretchedly tragic is God's image bearer standing over against God. This is the de-godding of God so that I can be my own God. This, is, this, in short, is idolatry. It's not just fruit. It's not just a minor act of disobedience. We do this, right? I mean, we, we, we've talked about this a fair bit in the past. Of We create socially access, accept, acceptable sins. Right? A white lie is somehow better than just a plain lie. What, 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 what are we doing there? What do we, why, why do we frame it that way? Who, whose voice are we listening to when we do that? And do we realize the significance of that choice? A simple act of disobedience is way more than just a simple act of disobedience. It's as D.A. Carson's pointed out, they're a de-godding of God. For them, it was something as simple as fruit, and maybe that's why it was something as simple as fruit. To help us to see that it's way more than just about the fruit. Right? It's about a choice of who are we going to follow. You know, and this kind of makes sense of some of the, the, the more confronting New Testament passages, Right? In John 8, Jesus is having just a little friendly chit-chat with some of the religious people of his day. And, and as he talks to them and you know, tries to help them to see that they are enslaved to sin, they are not good people. They are slaves to sin because everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we're all in that same boat together. They're arguing about whether they're free people or not free people. They don't like that Jesus confronts them with their sin. And they begin to have hatred in their heart towards them. 
And Jesus very plainly there in the middle of John 8 tells them, you know what, you're not listening to God as your father. You're listening to Satan as your father. You're listening to the liar. Because again, their, their, their minds have been influenced down this path that is contrary to the way of God. And who's, who does that apply to? Everyone. Not just the Pharisees. Also good old Peter. That's why Jesus very plainly tells Peter, when Peter you know, is buying into an ideology that's contrary to the way of the cross, he tells him, get behind me, Satan. Right? Peter is, is not being an image bearer of the God who created him in that moment. Peter may think he's got great motives, right? He's trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross, trying to prevent Jesus from being crucified. And yet, from Jesus' perspective, man, you are, you are embodying the way of the serpent. You're buying into that law. And in doing that, you are in direct opposition to God. Right? Satan is, is, is a formidable opponent. And when he deceives us into sin, the consequences are catastrophic. All right, let's look here very quickly here, hopefully quick, about the effects of sin, right? What happens to this creation that we looked at the last two weeks, uh, that, that, that at every step of the turn, God looks at it and says, hey, it's good. It's good, meaning it works, it functions. It's doing what it's created to do. It's doing what it's intended to do. What, what happens when sin and rebellion enter God's throne room. All right? Look at first here at, at the vertical effects. Vertical effects, right? As we see with Adam and Eve there in chapter 3, verses 22, it reads, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground, from which he had been taken. Right? Adam and Eve right, are no longer walking with God in the garden, no longer in his throne room. They are banished. They are pushed out. Physical proximity to God is removed. Right? And there's a word play there in, in, in the Hebrew, uh, you know, down there in, 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 in verse 22, uh, where it says, you know, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Right? Uh, you know, to prevent the man from sending out his hand to the tree, God is sending him out of the garden. All right? This idea of what does sin do at the most fundamental level? It separates us from God. It separates us from God. All right? Adam and Eve together, push, pushed out. All right? You get to chapter 4, and what happens in chapter 4? Two people, Cain and Abel, coming, making sacrifices to God, so still seeking God. God's still willing to, to accept you know, those sacrifices. One, one's on point, the other not. Room for improvement is the message that he's given. All right? Uh, you know, again, not, not good, but you can begin to see man, problems. All right? And, and you fast forward, you know, further, you know, you get down to chapter 6 of Genesis, and, and what's the state of mankind? It's not like, okay, half are doing all right. Those who are following Cain, not so much. It's, it's, it's every inclination of every heart is evil all the time. Again, it, it's, it's cascading. As, as, as we get further and further removed from God, we listen more and more to Satan. And we become more and more corrupted. You know, and that story, of course, is followed by that of Babel. Right? Where mankind is being led by a guy named Nimrod. Which is kind of an unfortunate name. Don't ever name your kid Nimrod. Right? You know, but, but, you know, the text says of Nimrod there in, in, in Genesis 11, verse 9, that he was before the Lord, meaning in opposition to God. And that was his state. And what, what was he overseeing? The construction of a, of a temple so that mankind could do what? Reach God. Reach God. What, what, what do Adam and Eve buy into? Eat this and you will be like God. Mankind further and further and further and further. As we sever that, that vertical relationship through rebellion, think, things do not get better, they get worse. That's the storyline, the timeline of every person's life in this room, whether you realize it or not. The more acts of rebellion you, you bring into your life, 
that the further you get from God and as a byproduct of that, the more you destroy your life. Right? That's, that's a pattern of Genesis 1 to 11, right? 1 to 2, what do we see? God creates. It's orderly. It's good. Things function. Mankind chooses to do its own way, and it goes into greater and greater and greater disorder. It's a, it's a picture of, of what's wrong with the world. Well, that, that's what's wrong with the world, is we rebel. We turn from God, and in doing that, we, we die a death that's probably worse than the death we often think about when we read Genesis 3. And that's the death, you know, that Satan kind of plays on with Eve, right? You're not going to die. I mean, in some senses, is Satan right on face value? Does she eat the fruit and fall down dead, you know, like Snow White? She doesn't. She's going to live on. She's going to have a lot more kids, uh, you know. But, but is, that, is that the kind of death? Well, as you can see on the screen there, Augustine, you know, theologian of the fourth century, it's not just physical death. Physical death is going to come, yes. But, but it's a more significant death. It's soul death. It's that spiritual death that we bring into our lives when we choose to rebel. Things go from bad to worse. It says there in chapter 3, verse 7, their eyes were open. All right? They knew not just perhaps intellectually that there is right and wrong and free will in, in, in the created order, but they knew it experientially. All right? They knew it experientially. And, and as they realized that, right, as their eyes were open, it says they realized they were naked. Right? Now that's an idiom uh, for guilt. All right? They realized there is something wrong with me. Therefore, I feel shame, and I need to keep people from seeing me as I really am. Think about that for a second. That idiom for, for naked, it's not, it's, not, it's not about clothing, okay? It's not about the latest fashion. It's not about the sweet you know, clothes they try to make of themselves. It's, it's telling us something more profound about what guilt does to us and what shame does to us. That nakedness is this idea, and, and, and all of us, for the most part, feel it, though occasionally you do encounter someone who has none of it, especially naked. Someone was telling me a story about that. I won't name names, uh, you know, about a brother they lived with at one point uh, when they were single, and the brother would constantly walk around naked, right? They didn't have much shame, but that, that brother probably has shame on, you know, just like everyone else's shame, but maybe not on that physical level, but maybe on a deeper level, right, as we all do. But it's that idea of, man, we're not at ease of who we are. And we spend an enormous amount of emotional energy and physical energy trying to control and manage that image of how, what do people see? What do they think of me? Right? But it's all coming from that, 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 that choice. And Adam and Eve, of course, they don't stop there with, with the feeling of nakedness. They then try to cover up themselves. This is one of the things, you know, Timothy Keller talks about this in, in, in his sermon on this text. He says, one of the things that commonly occurs in the wake of defying God is this. When we deny that we have any responsibility for what happened. Everything we do that is wrong is someone else's fault. To put this another way, one of the inevitable results of guilt and shame is self-justification. Adam justifies himself by blaming Eve. Eve justifies herself by blaming the serpent. Our only hope of being reconciled to God, however, is for God to justify us. For God to vindicate us. Self-justification cannot cut it. Because we are guilty. In fact, self-justification is merely one more evidence of idolatry. The idolatry of thinking we have the resources to save ourselves. The idolatry that is still so impressed by self that it cannot readily admit guilt. That's Adam and Eve in that moment. Trying to cover up, trying to hide. That's us every time we, we do things and we know they're wrong and we know it was the wrong path. We, we probably even know on some level that, man, it was us giving ear to the serpent rather than listening to the word of God and making choices that lead us further from God. But when we come here together and people ask, how are you going? Oh, it's great. Or someone reaches out to you because they kind of get the sense, you're lying. You don't even believe what you just said. And so someone reaches out and they try to, hey, how are you going? Let's get a coffee. Let's talk. And, and, and you sit there and you, and you just lie. It's all about covering. But on a deeper level, it's, it's, it's you trying to justify you. 
you refusing to face the reality spiritually of where things are at, and, and you trying to cover it up with something as foolish and temporary as fig leaves. It'll never do it. People around you see through it, and you better believe God sees through it clearly. And of course, that way of life, right? A way of life where, where rebellion takes root because of the sinful act of disobedience to God. That then gives birth to, to, to shame and guilt, which then leads us to a path of, of, you know, PR management for our own lives and trying to manage the image, right? It, it, and then we end up controlled completely by fear. That's what Adam and Eve said. God, I mean, it's, it's a comical scene, really. They're in a bush, hiding from the God who literally created everything, themselves and the bush. Why are you hiding? We're afraid. Fear. Fear is a dangerous thing, guys. And so many of the great Bible stories try to warn us against the path of fear versus the path of faith. Fear takes root, and as Hebrews, you know, chapter 2 later on will tell us, you know, that, that, that there in verse 14, it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared, talking about Jesus, and their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Fear. It, it controls us. We've got to look and we've got to see the, 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 the narrative, the purpose of the story is showing us everything was good. Everything was good with Adam and Eve. Everything was good with God. Everything was good in the world. But, but in that moment of rebellion, the wheels begin to come off. And the first thing that begins to be destroyed is that relationship with God. And the next thing is that of ourselves. And if we have no vertical connection with God, and we're all turned up, upside down by fear and shame and guilt within ourselves, there's no way you have functional relationships. Now, oftentimes, we, the first things we notice is that we have no horizontal relationships. And we often think that the horizontal relationships are the problem. But in reality, they're like the third down the rung of the problems. Right? And if you look at it like concentric circles, it's not, the, it's not the core. It's the ripple effect act. The core is your relationship with God. And then your relationship within yourself because you've damaged your relationship with God. And the most obvious fruit does tend to be then your relationships with others. And you see this so clear as day in Genesis. You see it here in this text. Right? As they turn on one another, they cover up. Trying to control what other people see, they blame shift on one another. Blaming God, blaming each other, blaming the serpent, all in a, in a feeble attempt, attempt to try to control a situation that they've lost control of because of their own choices. And I appeal to you to, to, to not fall into the trap of when you have crummy relationships, to not blame it on other people, but see that that's probably a fruit of some deeper problems in your own life. It's so easy to blame other people rather than seeing the core problem. But Genesis is very clear about it. It does destroy those horizontal relationships. Adam and Eve, they may turn on each other and they may blame each other, but they don't kill each other. But their offspring will. And their offspring will give birth to another guy named Lamech. And Lamech will take up the, you know, kind of the mentality of Cain. And you can read it in chapter 4 of Genesis uh, Lamech writes some poetry as well. It's not like Adam's poetry uh, of rejoicing in, in, in the wife that he has. Lamech is basically, hey, a young boy wounded me, so I killed him. And he, he's reveling in what? He's, it's violence. It's all about destroying those horizontal relationships, right? What, what, why does that happen? Why is the story showing us? It's the ripple effects of sin. It's what sin does in creation, destroying everything that comes in contact with, right? Thankfully, the story doesn't end there, though. I mean, you think about, you think about the, the, the arc of this story. Three chapters in, God creates, God gives life. At every step of the, 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 the way, he's, he's reveling in how good it is, how, how, 
how it functions. He, he entrusts to lesser beings incredibly, incredible responsibility to be his image bearers, to, to, to take that pattern that is found in Eden and, and spread that pattern throughout the, throughout the earth. And to do that as God's image bearers. And, and to have that which he has created turn on him. I mean, most of us wouldn't stomach that on the smallest level. And it's not even a comparison, right? I mean, there's lots of passages in the Bible that, that poke at this idea, right? We, Michelle and I were talking earlier today uh, with this couple, and we were talking, we were all kind of having a chuckle about, you know, I mean, there's a couple times in, in, in the Bible where, where the Bible tries to help us to see we're like a pot of clay that God is molding. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a nature of our relationship, right? We're a clay pot in the hands of a master sculptor. And for us as that clay pot to then say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you making me like this? The, the idiocy of that, right, it should not be missed by us, right? But to see that, man, that's what's happening here. God's vice regents that wouldn't exist if he hadn't spoken to him in existence have turned on him and tried to set themselves up to be like God. And yet God doesn't destroy everything in that moment. Most of us would erupt in rage. Most of us would be filled with contempt. Most of us would just, you know, again, like to just rip the whole thing up. Quit, call quits. But God, God doesn't operate that way. He, he, he chooses to engage in their game of hide and seek that they didn't even invite him to. He chooses to seek them out. And he doesn't do it by setting the bush on fire, though that would have been kind of cool, right? He, he, he draws them out. This is true, guys, for all of our lives. Most of you are sitting here because some stranger decided to follow God and make disciples and seek you out and, and bring you to God. Right? Some person decided to go back and, hey, I want to be that image bearer that I'm meant to be. Do God's work on this earth as I'm meant to do. And so they sought you out. Was it your initiative? Was it your grand idea? Your grand ideas were destroying your life and making you miserable. And that's why you said yes to the stranger that asked you if you need help. Right? But man, that's God, right? Pursuing. Pursuing even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't merit it. He comes to them, he initiates, he pursues them. And then when he gets there with them, he counsels them. Where are you? What, what have you done? Answers, he knows the questions. You know, he knows the questions to those answers. He knows the answers to those questions. But he's asking them. And the Bible's chock full of these examples of God doing that. One of my favorites is, 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 is uh, Elijah there in 1 Kings. He's running for his life. He's, he's depressed to the point of contemplating suicide. And God patiently asks him, Elijah, why are you here? Elijah rants. God asks him again, Elijah, why are you here? He rants. Elijah, why are you here? I mean, God, questions. Drawing them out. Counseling them. Doing that same thing with Cain in the next chapter. Cain, why, why is your face downcast? Why are you so angry? This is important for us to understand, man. You're, you're God. The, the most high God is a benevolent God. He's a God whose, whose aim is helping you to be what you were created to be. His aim is not the destruction or the restriction of your life. His aim is the flourishing of your life. You being what you are meant to be, to become what you were created to be. But the path to that is the path of humility. He asks questions, and the questions he asks them dismantles their attempts to evade him. His questions are aimed at dismantling their, their, their guilt, their shame. His questions are all about drawing them out, helping them to learn to freely confess what they've done, to freely acknowledge it, to not blame somebody else, to not blame one another, to not blame God, to not blame serpent, but to take responsibility for their choice. So he counsels them. 
It's interesting is he doesn't ask questions of Satan. There's a distinction between that which is a choice to follow evil and that which is evil. Satan, no, there's no hope for redemption. Embedded here in Genesis 3 in the fall of man is tremendous hope. Tremendous hope, not just because he comes and seeks them out, not just because he approaches them to counsel them, but he closes them. Again, if you know the Bible, you know that's heavy foreshadowing for what God will ultimately do for all of us. He makes garments for them that are way better than the ones they made for themselves. That our attempts at self-justification are useless attempts at self-justification. It's obviously a pointer towards that of the sacrificial system, which is a pointer ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ. And Paul in Galatians 3, verses 26 to 27 tells us, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. But that's God's aim. Because there's always hope, even in this chapter where they fall as far as you can from grace, there's hope. Eve's offspring, verse 15, will crush the head of the serpent. They're being driven from the garden, yes. Eve's going to have literally, verse 16, multiplied pain in childbirth. But she's still going to multiply, which is what they're meant to be doing, right? Be fruitful and increase, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate. So even as they've fallen, even as they've run from the redemption that God's offering, right? God's, God's plan is still moving forward. They, they, she's still going to fulfill that role. And even verses 17 to 19, right? Adam is still going to be a cultivator. It's going to be a lot harder, right? The ground's not going to produce as easily what it's you know, intended to produce. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, but Adam still has the same charge. You know, and so what, what, what is God trying to tell us? And I think the message is that God's not done with humanity yet. The goal he had of them ruling in earth, it's not abandoned. It's still his intent. It's still what he's going to pursue. And I think that tells us something about the, the, what's at the core, you know, of, of, I think, mankind's longing. You know, and I touched on this uh, uh, a few weeks ago when I referenced that, the book uh, San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know if you've read that book or not, but interesting book. But it, but it talks about how man, man, we, we all, across cultures and across time, have this sense that we want to make the world a better place. You know, and that, 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 that deep longing that everyone has is in some sense it's a longing for Eden. It's a longing for what we were created to be and what we were created to do. But we've got to be careful in our pursuit. Because our secular world says pursue that through social justice issues. And I'm not, it's not commentary on social justice issues. But it removes God from the equation. And it tells you, hey, you'll feel meaningful, you'll feel satisfaction, purpose, all those things, pursuing this cause. But if you, if you take God out of it, it cannot and it will not ever be able to, to deliver. Because you do actually have a purpose. You do actually have a meaning. And that purpose and meaning is, is similar to what the secular world is trying to feed a vast majority of the world. And that's to make the world a better place. But, but you're not going to do it devoid of God. You cannot do it devoid of God. The world tries this over and over and over. Right? Taking biblical principles, using them to help people put their lives back together that have been ravaged by addiction... It's successful, and then they try to strip it of all the spiritual qualities, and but yet some try to keep some framework, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you can buy into the latest, you know, self-help mantras and fads. And some of it sounds good, and some of it has a similarity to biblical principles, but again, it's fundamentally flawed because God's word has been removed from it. Yeah. And Satan will do the same thing, right? I mean, he. He comes to us with wisdom. It seems prudent. He is crafty. He, he, he slightly twists and distorts, though. And, and if we buy into that, 
If we give ear to that, if we listen to that, we end up destroying our lives. First and foremost, our relationship with God. Then our ability to be at peace with ourselves and any hope of having relationships with one another. But God's word still rings out. And you have a choice. Listen to him. Allow that pattern embedded in creation of God speaks his word and creation responds and it is good. It functions. It works. We ignore that to our own demise. You know, as we take the bread and the wine, I encourage you to think about this overarching concept that we see here in Genesis 3. As Michael Heiser said, he says, Genesis 3 tells us why we die. Why we need redemption and salvation and why we cannot save ourselves. Right? Henry's here, right? Why we cannot save ourselves. It also tells us that God's plan has only been delayed, not defeated. Let's pray for the bread and wine. Give thanks to God for clothing us with his righteousness of his son that was purchased through the cross. Amen? Father, we, uh, we, we, we thank you that you took a risk that you chose to embed free will and choice into creation so that we could freely love you and follow you, God. Father, we pray you help us, God, to to be people that that are, you know, clothed with humility, Father. To see that that we often do choose to rebel. We often do choose to, to follow the pattern of Satan. Think of ourselves way more highly than we ought. To choose our own paths rather than listening to your word, God. We pray, God, you help us, God. Help us to be a people that, that see you not as a you know, harsh father bent on destroying us, but rather to see you as you are. A benevolent creator that, that audaciously entrusts so much to us, God, as his image bearers. Help us, God. Help us to see in our own lives the, the, the sober effects that sin produces. <clears throat> and may that drive us back to the cross as a solution to those things. Because you know, God, and we, we do as well on some level, God, that our feeble attempts at self-justification are just that. They're feeble. They're useless. They, they don't deliver. They never can deliver. That we may be able to temporarily deceive one another, but we could never deceive you, God. And we are a people desperately in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness, God. And we thank you. We thank you that you have provided a way. We, we thank you that you have crushed the head of the serpent. You have provided clothes for us, God, that, that cover up our shameful nakedness, God. And you've clothed us with your son, God. And we, we pray, God, that you help us as we take that bread and the wine to reflect on the great cost that was paid for us to be clothed in your sight. And we pray, God, that that then translates into our lives being radically different. Not living the, the, the way of pride, of self-centeredness, but rather to live as your image bearers. Pouring out our lives in service for others to your glory. Can we thank you and we praise you and we ask Christ's name. Amen. Amen.